Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino. On this episode, we talk with novelist, actress, and creative Catherine Butterfield. The Santa Monica, California resident began her career as an actress and then turned to writing plays, many of which have been published and performed in the U.S., England, Australia, and Spain. She has been a writer and or writer-producer on the television programs The Ghost Whisperer, Grimm, Party of Five, and Fame LA, and has done uncredited work on a number of feature films. Two of the short films, Faultless and Just Another birthday in Bedlam have won Telly Awards, a gold and bronze for best remote production. Her YouTube channel has a large number of the short films she has shot during the pandemic under the heading Life During Lockdown, as well as readings of a few of her plays. The Serpent and the Rose is Miss Butterfield's first novel. She's a great interview. Enjoy. Let's go into happy things here. Thank you for taking okay. that out. And I want to begin our conversation with we're going on the four-year anniversary of this pandemic. How did you get through the pandemic when it started in 2020, and how did it change you? Oh, boy, that was something, wasn't it? Um, yeah. I got through it by making short films in the home with my husband. Good. And I think otherwise I really would have lost my mind. And I've seen some people who actually seem to have lost their minds since then, so it doesn't feel like... Uh, uh, speculation that I could have spiraled into some sort of deep depression. I started making these little short films. At first, they were like 10 seconds long. They're just like little cartoons of what my husband and I were going through. And uh, they got longer and longer. And by the end of the pandemic, I had, I think, a 13-minute film that I <laughs> sent around to festivals. And they were shot in the home. They reflected you know, the madness that was our lives at that point, just the simplest things like, do we have to talk about food again? You know, <laughs> and people uh, watched them and would would write me or even call me and say, you are helping me so much get through this. And so having a purpose like that uh, got me through it. Just yeah. feeling like I was helping other people who were stuck in their little spaces helped me with mine and uh it was it was it turned out to be and then i after a while i ran out of material with my husband and i dug out of my closet these old string puppets these old marionettes yeah. that my mother and i had made when i was in high school and i hadn't i hadn't used them since then and not only did I start making films with them, but I actually started making, creating marionettes. And uh, uh, I don't know how I made them because I am not artsy craftsy. I, I believe that my mother visited me and helped me make them and they turned out really great. Uh, and so I started telling stories with them. And to tell you the truth, I got a little weird. It's okay. <laughs> I got so personally involved in these little puppets and their stories and and uh, and what they looked like and who they were uh, that, you know, I think we all escaped however we could. Yeah. And I so agree. that became that became my escape was telling you. stories about these guys, who they were, what they were living through. They were kind of they were oblivious to uh, the pandemic. Yeah. But they lived alongside humans who were going through it. So yeah. they were just kind of trying to figure it out, you know. Sure. Sure. And it, it helped me to to make that story. So let me ask you this. If I put you in front of a bunch of third graders at career day in this very day of twenty twenty four, if they were to ask you, Hey, what do you do for a living? How do you answer them? I would say I was a writer. Okay. Yeah. I started out as an actress 
and um, I had a nice career uh, for a while and uh, in regional theater mainly, traveling from city to city, doing different plays. I, I focused on the classics mostly and uh, did a lot of Shakespeare. And it was a great, it was a great career for when, for your twenties and thirties. Uh, and then I just started seeing the writing on the wall with that. You know, I, I, I just felt like for me, I couldn't be a regional theater actress forever. It's a good thing I made that decision because theater is going through so much turmoil right now. Yeah. Um, but I started thinking, and another problem was that I lived in New York, but I was never in New York. I was always going to other cities doing plays. And so when I would get back to New York, uh, people, you know, casting people would say, so what have you done recently? And what I had done recently was like in Seattle or Pittsburgh and they didn't care. So I started writing my own material. And at first I did a one woman show in New York and that went very well. And then I started writing uh, more characters and more characters. And pretty soon I started feeling like I don't necessarily need to be in this. Yeah. I, I just enjoy writing them now. And so I started putting my actor friends in them and uh, expanding that way. And uh, at that point, those were just like uh, one act, one act plays. So an opportunity came by for me to uh, understudy the national tour of the Heidi Chronicles. I don't know if you remember that play. It was written by uh, Wendy Wasserstein. And understudying normally would be like, oh, so that means I don't get on stage probably. I just sit in the wings and wait for it to be over and then I go home. Boring, but I thought here's a chance to get paid good money because it pays pretty well and sit in a hotel room <laughs> seeing if I can write. And so I took the money, it was a nine month tour and by the end of the nine months I had written my first uh, full length play. I would have the actors at, at night after the show, they'd come up into my, into my hotel room and we'd all lie on the beds and read the play. And it, it, it was, and, you know, I, these are great actors. They've gone, some of them have gone on to, you know, quite a bit of fame. Sure. Um, and I, I learned a great deal about how, uh, how my play was working and how it wasn't working and how to restructure it. And uh, by the time I got done, I had a really good play, which uh, got done at the Manhattan Theater Club and was extremely well-reviewed. And that really launched my playwriting career. Yeah. And that kind of credibility. How did this happen? Tell me where you were born and raised. How did these seeds of becoming an actress and a writer and being creative, how did this happen? Well, I think it had something to do with both my parents. My father uh, was I, uh, he was he was very invested in the early days of television. He 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 believed in it greatly, and uh, he started his career just as someone who would sell ad time for television. And he was a real self-made man, so that was inspirational. He was somebody who could convince you to buy the shirt off your own back. And so he uh, followed this TV trajectory and when we would travel, my family moved around from city to city as he took different jobs at different TV stations. And finally he became the general manager of one in Minneapolis, I think. And from then on, he was the general manager as we moved. He would you know, take their market and turn it into something bigger than it was. And back then it had to do with the, uh, the local news and how that was structured. And it had to do with, um, you know, putting in a cooking show, for instance, or uh, he had a show called Ask the Manager, which he loved to do because he was the star of it. 
and people would write in and say, how do you run this TV station? Now, TV has changed a great deal since then. Yeah. And being a, you know, the, the manager of a local affiliate is no big deal. You don't get to really call too many shots. You do what the network tells you to do. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's, you know, I don't think you'd be, uh, you'd be having half as much fun if you were doing this now. Yeah. And my mother was a playwright initially. Actually, she, um, yeah, in college, she was a playwright. She was the first woman to have one of her plays done at Yale, um, Yale grad school. And so that was quite a feather in her cap. And then she moved to New York and started writing for CBS radio. That's where she met my dad. And uh, so the two of them, and I, I have a memory when I was a kid of seeing both of them on stage in community theater and oh, feeling God. like, wow, what is this? I love this. I want to do this. That's great. So, that's great. That's, what a great story. So who's been a hero for you? Someone that's been very inspirational for you in your life. Well, I guess my dad um, and my mom, too. Um, but he's someone who died young. My mother got to live to the nice, ripe old age of 94. My dad died at 54. And it was the greatest tragedy of our family. It took us all a decade to recover because he was one of those people who just seemed like nothing could defeat him. He was just a big, gregarious Irishman with an easy laugh and nothing was wrong. No matter what was wrong, it wasn't really wrong. And it just, it, it was shocking to all of us when he died suddenly of a heart attack on the golf course. But he was the one who inspired me to be brave enough to try to do things. I was kind of a wallflower and a terribly sh cripplingly shy as a kid. He was always pushing me, get out there, kid. Get out there, you can do it. Come on, run for office. You gotta do this, you gotta run. God, he made me run for school office, it was terrible. <laughs> but uh, he, when he died, my grief was so extreme that you know, you feel the void of their personal characteristics and missing from your life. And so I decided to fill that void by having those characteristics myself. It may sound a little weird, but I, I sort of faked it till I made it, you know. I, I faked the confidence. I faked the easygoing, I can do this vibe. Uh, the confident, you know, you can put your trust in me thing, which I never had prior to his death. And after a while, I just felt like I, I incorporated it into my own personality. It's amazing. That what is. Yeah. Do. I mean, that that's that's an amazing healing mechanism, too. I mean, I remember yes. when I was a kid, my best friend who had chronic health problems, he used to go inside and hook up to the IV. He had liver issues and he ended uh, up dying when I was 16. He was 17. I remember telling his mom one time I worked at the grocery store and, and her name was Ginger. And I said, Ginger, I just want you to understand something. I'm going to run a little harder in life to live for him and yes. me. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of that immaculate duality. Absolutely. And it's honoring their life to yeah. do that. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, yeah. that's, I guess, what was going with me. It helps you. It helps. I mean, it doesn't help them, but maybe it helped his mom to hear that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Um, so let me ask you this. As a creative in various capacities, what is the motivator for you every day to wake up and to not only create, but to evolve as a human being? What is that for you? 
Well, that's the big question, isn't it? I think yeah. for me, um, I think uh, you've got to stay interested in life. There are days when you wake up and you're like, why? You know? Um, I mean, I'm sort of a buoyant personality, so I don't wake up with too many mornings like that, but I know a lot of people who do. And the trajectory of their morning is they wake up depressed and it takes all day to to get themselves into some kind of shape. I'm sort of the opposite. I wake up a little more hopeful and let the day degrade me. <laughs> but for me, being able to start writing on something, being able to create a story, <clears throat> being able to even express myself uh, articulately in some avenue, it satisfies some inner thing that needs expressing. And I can't even really speak to what exactly that is, but it, it is an addiction for sure. I would say it's a healthy addiction. There are so many other things you could be addicted to. Yeah. <clears throat> and it, when I'm doing it, I feel as though I'm connected to something bigger than myself. And I think that's what we all need. I think that's why some people go to church, or probably yeah. most people, um, is they need that feeling of being connected to something bigger. When I was an actress, that something bigger was theater. Something about being on stage, telling a story in front of an audience, that really satisfied the need to mm, feel like you're part of a whole, yeah. you know? And then as I became a writer, um, it's a different kind of satisfaction, but it's very tangible of that feeling of communication, reaching out. Nothing makes me happier than when someone says to me, you know, God, I saw your play and I know just what you're talking about. I've had that experience. I felt that way. I was deeply moved. It's about communication. And that's why I worry so much about AI, but let's a whole other subject. Yeah, that, that can't be a wormhole. Can't so, get into that. <laughs> so let me ask you this. What was the first standing ovation or fan letter or response that you got where it really literally was like the first drug for you, where you were like, wow, this is the life. This is what I want to do. And when you ask that question, something pops into my head that may not be the absolute first, but it was certainly the most important which was this play that I wrote that I told you about, was about my high school boyfriend and the woman that he had married uh, who had cancer and had been struggling with it for some years and was clearly in the final stages of it. She was only 30-something when I met her. And I was so, I was so moved by her. And I liked her so enormously. And the injustice of her death seemed so... It's incredibly horrible to me that that's what my play became about. It became about this person who's on a tour. I actually made it more like Wendy Wasserstein because she's a writer who's on a tour who comes into her hometown of Boston and meets up with her high school boyfriend and his wife who has cancer. And it sort of was a comedy in a way, believe it or not, because she starts telling the story and getting a little maudlin. And the character playing this other girl stands up and says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're telling this story wrong. This isn't how it was at all. And I, so when I wrote it, I did not expect it to get picked up very quickly. I hadn't, I didn't have a career yet as a writer, but because of the events that occurred, <clears throat> very lucky events that occurred that led to it being 
I, I got an offer from the Manhattan Theater Club to have it done, which is a big theater in New York. Uh, I had to tell her about it. And I was terrified. And I said, if you, I wrote this play about you. And if you don't want it to be done, I will say no to them. So she read it. And four weeks went by. And I thought, oh, my God, she hated it. She hates me. Oh, no. Yeah. And finally she called me and she said, I've read it four times. And I think you should do it. It's very important. It's, 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 you know, partially fictionalized, which is cool. And I think you should do it. So that fall, which is very fast in theater world, they did the play. In fact, they wanted to push it back to the spring, but I said, no, no, you can't. She will not be alive. And so they kept it in the fall and we did it. And she and her husband came to the preview of it. They were in Boston. I was in New York. He worked at a place called Milton Academy, which is a private school. And those people raised the money for her to be flown to New York. And they put them up at the Riga Royal Hotel right across the street from city center. And she came to the preview. I'm getting chills just talking about this. And uh, she sat in the second row. I remember this so vividly. She and Peter sat in the second row center. And apparently they rolled out the red carpet for her because she was using a walker at that point. And um, I was playing her. This was wow. when I was still sort of doing the hybrid acting yeah. writing thing. And I was playing her. So, you know, have a little pressure. And yeah. I did the play. I was, I was so nervous. I, I just thought I was going to die. And, but I tried to do it <clears throat> as honestly as I could. Capturing her real great, no bullshit personality, her great sense of humor, all of that. And at the end, we took the curtain call. And everyone stood. She could not stand. But she was there with this big grin on her face, just a huge smile. And her husband was tears pouring down his face. And I've, I've never felt such a magical experience in my entire life. Wow. And it, to me, I, I actually thought at the time, it'll never get any better than this. I am telling this woman's story who's not going to live very much longer. And yeah. weirdly, she died on our closing day. Um, we were told about it at the matinee. And her husband said that he felt that our play was keeping her alive. Wow. Because every night she would say to him, well, the actors are coming to the dressing room now. They're putting on their makeup. The show's about to start. And uh, and then on our last day, she died. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Wow, that's crazy. That, that's, that's amazing. So yeah. let me ask you this. Of all of the things that you've done and become and overcome in your life, what are you the proudest of? Mm. Um, well, you know, that's right up there. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, that's that's it, really. I mean, that's that's it. That was that was I've I've never done anything since then that I've had a lot of, you know, nice successes with plays. And, uh, you know, things that people have responded well to. And I've worked on TV series and those were fun. And I've worked on film with movie stars and stuff. And those were fun. Nothing, nothing compares to that. Yeah. However, I can't think of anything that tops that, you know, the birth of my daughter. Um, 
but creatively you're talking about yeah i mean i i think probably usually f when it comes to family it's usually children yeah so I, that's the I, unsaid first thing yeah exactly so let me ask you this let me get let me let me kind of take the baton in a different direction everyone has a perception of you family friends all of your fans everybody that knows you but you ultimately run the show what's your perception of you who do you think you are well that's evolved um i used to not like myself as much as i do now and i used to be much more deeply insecure and i used to worry what people thought about me a lot and uh, i don't even think about it now <laughs> mm. i mean it's you know, you reach a certain age and it's like, this is me, I'm cooked. So if you like it, that's cool. And if you don't like it, you know, okay, that's that too. Um, but I think that over the years, I've, I've managed to become a lot stronger as a person and not be so neurotic. I, I feel like as I look back on it, and especially when I see my, <laughs> my daughter at, her, at that age and all the crazy neuroses that go on. Yeah. And the, the, the hormones that are zooming through your body that just make the world a little too nuts. Uh, I'm really grateful to have reached an age where none of that stuff possesses me the way it used to. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. How do you feel? Do you feel like you're, you're happier with who you are now than you were, say, oh, yeah. when you were in high school? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Getting older because you don't remember all of the peccadilloes that go into you know, what you do early on, what bothered you then, but you have to right. get nicked up, you have to get scraped, you have to feel exhilaration, you have to feel divorce, you have to feel remarriage, you have to feel children. There's all of these forces that you hear about that are all a part of art, but you don't feel it until you actually do it. And yes. if you find a way to evolve and to keep that glass half full, you're going to get to a point where you're going to really enjoy older age. Cause I, I just turned 51 and I'm already starting to have thoughts of, man, I don't want to leave. I'm, I really dig what's going on, but you know that you're almost, you're getting to that point. You, you, the sun's not rising anymore. Like it used to, it's starting to <laughs> go the other way. And you know, people aren't talking about your great potential anymore. Right. You're not like, Oh my God, I want to do all of this with my life. Not that you don't, but there's right. a different fervor. It's like, you know, I've had the chance to go to college campuses in my life. And when I get there, that's an incubator of energy that's just ready to explode. Yes. And, you know, that's a different vibe. So whenever you can, I don't know, at this point when you've lived, because I see them doing all these things and I'm like, man, how many times is that dude going to get divorced? How many how many, how many, many kids is she going to have? Like, you're just playing these scenarios out in your head, but you just, you don't know until you live them. And that's the backbone of art. I think it's the backbone of good theater. It's the reason why Shakespeare has resonated and will continue timelessly through our lives and the lives yes. and lives of generations that go on. Yes. Know? Yes. So. I think for when they're, you know, you're college age and a little bit probably into your thirties, uh, the stakes are so high. Yeah. Everything seems like the stakes are so high. Yeah. And the realization that they're maybe not as high as you think because other stuff is going to happen to you. Yeah. That's going to really out overshadow what you're telling me about right now. Yeah. yeah. But you can't yeah. really tell them that, can you? Right. No, you can't because they're going to have no idea. You know, it's 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 interesting. I was just thinking about your story about the play and how magnanimous that was. 
I dreamed, I, I have a jazz radio show, and my dream, I used to go down to the Folly Theater. I would call, and it's the, in downtown Kansas City. It's this great theater that just has housed all of these legendary performances over the years. And I used to call a radio station and win tickets before I had a jazz show. And eventually, fast forward, I got this show. I always thought, how cool would it be to host, there's a, a jazz talk before the show. And how cool it would be to get to the point to do that. And I got offered the gig. And my uh -huh. gig about a month ago was with a band called the Hot Sardines. And it's kind of this this 1920s revival thing that gets people moving. And Miss Elizabeth is a lead singer, and it's this band. And I interviewed them in 2015 on their way to Kansas City. And I'm a writer, too, so I wrote a poem about my experience with being on the phone with her, and it got published. And I actually presented it at this place called the Writer's Place in Kansas City in front of my old college professor. And all of it came full circle. So when I was going to do this jazz talk, I had the actual copy in a book. And I didn't think that she was going to think much of it. I was like, I'm just going to show you this poem. I made a copy and I hand it to her right before we go out to do the jazz talk. And she's like, what is this? And I said, I wrote a poem about you and it got published and I recited it. And she was like, are you kidding me? Can I have this? And I just didn't even expect it was going to be a blip. She took it and she said, oh my God. And she started tearing up and she's like, I got to frame this when I get home. And it was just one oh, of those moments wow. where you're like, where your art comes full circle. It becomes something yeah. that goes from being real, imaginary, real, imaginary, this carousel of just infinite yes. possibilities, you know? Isn't, so that anyway. what, isn't that what art does? You know, it makes it, it makes your life larger too. Yeah. I think probably for my friend, Kathy, she felt as though her life was now, you know, it's set on a stage. It's, it, it's, it's larger. It, it's, yeah. she's going to leave something behind. And we, even though she didn't write it, it was her. We we all, in one way or another, no matter how our egos are in check or not, want to be immortalized. We don't want to see our time on down here not be, you know, validated. We want to have the the punch ticket, and that right there is the ultimate form of it. You know, so how beautiful that she was that moved. Well, and as we got off stage. She was like, man, my husband doesn't even write poetry like this. And I'm like, uh-oh, what kind of inferno am I going to create in their house? When they get <laughs> but anyway, it's just, it's, and that's the idea of poetry too. You're just taking these myopic moments of time and you're just making it magnanimous with the shortest amount of words. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah. Do you write a lot of poetry? Yeah, I've done that my whole life. It's, 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 it's my journal, so to speak. It's my way of therapeutically dealing with the insanity of life, so. You know. It's kind of word jazz, isn't it? Yeah. It, 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 yeah. And it's really, it's improv. It's one time. Because even if I get in front of a microphone to recite it, I'm still going to bumble around and not say it right as it should be. So it's like jazz. It happens once, it's vapor, and it's gone. Wow. Yeah. So I love that. That's the beauty of it, for sure. Yeah. So so when if, I'm writing plays, I have the same experience of wanting there to be a metric, wanting to hear the music of the words. Yeah. It's, I'm not good at writing poetry. I've tried. It sucks. But with plays, I, I hear the voices in my head. Uh -huh. I hear the timbre of how I want the actor to sound. And I hear I hear the music of it. Yeah. I, I, I feel as though that's a little bit of the same thing. You know, I have one of my best friends of all time. He used to be the poet laureate of Kansas. His name is Kevin Rabus, and he's a jazz musician. And he writes scripts and he'd make short films. And I think about my brain doesn't work like that. Like, I just don't, I don't go into that place if I tried to do it. But for yeah. him, it makes total sense. It all comes yeah. together. And I always think whenever I, I watch, because sometimes he'll send over like pieces of scripts. 
I always think about somebody told me years ago when I was trying to learn the drums, don't hit it so hard. It's not about mm -hmm. how hard you hit it. Don't be John Bonham. Just go for rhythm. Just go for that. And I think about that with script writing. It's the subtleties. It's the Arthur Miller of it. It's that unlit cigarette. Or it's that one moment that you're just like, okay, it's the poet yeah. brain in me. But it's those little moments that just punch out of the page or punch out yeah. of the script that yeah. are undeniably human, but artistically yeah. polished well. Yes, yes. That's right. How well said. So it's fun. For sure. Yeah, it is. You should. Sounds like maybe you should try to write a play. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I tried. I, I tried to be in a play in high school with one of my drama teachers. Our town was was it, and all I had was one line, and it was, "Oh, ma, I have to learn all about Canada by ten o'clock." And I don't know what <laughs> happened, but I never got into that play. I don't think the teacher really liked me, but I, <laughs> I thought it was fun. It got my. It, it's kind of like broadcasting. There's a level of it where we're all kind of actors anyway. Yeah. So maybe at some point in my life, as the sun starts going down, I'll get that bucket out and kick it one more time, real hard, and see what I can do. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it has a lot to do with you know, as you said, what you're exposed to. I I got involved in plays because my family was doing that, and yeah. And then you, you know, you get what Mad Malcolm, uh, what's his name? Malcolm Gladwell. I Gladwell love him. calls it your 10,000 hours, right? Right. And so I did theater for a number of years and I did a, a you know, I probably did 50, 75, a, a lot of plays. And after a while, the music of plays gets inside your system. Yeah. And you start realizing how they're supposed to go. You realize that, you know, oh, there's got to be a turning event here. I got to introduce my people here. I got to pay this off. I got to pay that. Now we need a turning point. Um, <clears throat> and so when I started writing a play, I just felt, I felt the music of how it was supposed to go. Yeah. And I've, I've coached writers since then who really never were in plays, never really intuited what they were like from the inside out. And you, I find I have to explain to them real simple nuts and bolts stuff that it would never have occurred to me needed to be explained. Yeah. But if yeah. you haven't, you know, like I don't play the piano. And right. if anybody were to teach me how to play the piano, they'd probably be shocked at the rudimentary things they have to explain to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you're a master of it. And that's the thing I'm always fascinated by the actors that go to Broadway, like Doogie Howser. Um, that's yeah, kind of, Neil Patrick Harris. Yeah, that's kind of his bread and butter. He's hosted the Tonys. He loves to do theater. Like Jim Parsons from Big Bang Theory, he doesn't do any of that anymore. He does theater. And I'm always fascinated because I think at the end of the day, to have the acumen and the backbone to do theater far outweighs any other acting in the world. The level of vulnerability, the level of putting yourself out there, being in front of people, not having the faux pas of a camera in front of you. There is a grit that's different. And I always admire and everybody that. is breathing together. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. We're a living entity and it's a different living entity with every show. Yeah. It's almost like an organism. Uh -huh. And it, the audience comprises how the play is going to go in a lot of ways, in a really subtle way. Yeah, because you've got your script and it's not going to change. But the audience feeds the direction, the subtle direction that it's going to take that night, which is so different from film. Film is set in stone. Once it's yeah. there, it's there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like theatrical jazz. You know, it's the exactly. improv of it because you do. Yeah. You you feed off of the energy particles that are around you. I mean, I've been to enough shows where you're just sitting there and you're like almost like the ghost of Coltrane floated through and you're like, whoa, that was crazy. Uh, like I remember uh -huh. one time 
I saw a, a, a pianist. His name was Phil DeGreg. I'll never forget this. He was at the Blue Room off 18th and Vine, very historic place. And there was a, a storm going on outside and Ooh. big crash of lightning and all of the power went out. But he was on the piano and the bass player was doing acoustic and everything drums was acoustic. So everything mics went off, but you could still hear him play. And we're all just sitting there and they just kind of kept going. And then <gasps> everything came back up. And it was like just the absence of our human intermingling got just inter inter interceded at one moment. And it just yeah. became a magical thing. And they just kind of been very quiet because yeah stop talking right yeah exactly yeah. exactly and then everybody but only people that were talking ironically were the ones that were probably telling everybody to stop talking during the shows and it was the owner going what the hell is going on <laughs> it's the home of charlie parker so we're like is there some reverberating thing from the thunderclap that 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 happened the night he died so anyway there's there's all Ooh. kinds of suppositions going on at that point so that's very um, cool yeah it was awesome so if anyone out there wants to see your work reach out anything about your world oh, where can they go uh yeah first of all can i plug my novel please i want yes absolutely i, I should have mentioned this a while ago i've written my very first novel and it's a historical novel about um uh it takes place during the french renaissance it's it's marie de valois who I had never heard of before until I got to France. And her relationship with her mother, Catherine de' Medici, who's much more famous for being kind of a Machiavellian manipulator and great poisoner of people who she didn't like. Yeah. Well, you can imagine what being her daughter was like. And she actually married the man who went on to be uh, the King of France, King Henry IV. Um, and Shakespeare, I found, I learned all this while I was in France, wrote Love's Labor's Lost about her and her husband, Henry IV. Interesting. Because they had kind of a crazy, I guess, uh, you know, chateau filled with all sorts of romantic doings and everyone heard about them. And uh, so this is why you wrote this play. When I got there and I learned this about them, I thought perhaps I wanted to write about him, but then I read her memoirs and she was fascinating. She was a, she was a polyglot, she spoke five languages, uh, including Greek and, and, and Latin. She, uh, she had defended her brother in court. She was incredibly brilliant. And yet politically, she was totally vilified because she had married a Protestant and she was a Catholic. And there were slaughters going on. There were religious wars all the time. So uh, all that I could learn about her was, oh, she was a huge slut. <laughs> and I thought, this woman is not a huge slut. I just read her memoirs. She's yeah. fantastic. Sure. So I've written the book about her. It is called The Serpent and the Rose. Excellent. And it is uh, coming out on the 19th. What's today? The 15th. It's coming out four days from now. Perfect. And you can buy it on Amazon or anywhere, any bookstore that you want to go to. Yeah. But Amazon keeps account. And so it helps me. Um, and it's very, it's, it's funny in places. I gave her a voice. I've done it in diary form where she's like, you know, mom's forcing me into this marriage except it's the 16th century version of that yeah and it's good i think it's good I think excellent i have no doubt Catherine. this has been wonderful i'm trying to get out before the proverbial zoom door kicks us out so yes. <laughs> thank you so much for your time today for your story best of luck with the book and thank everything you. else i appreciate it i i enjoyed this very much me too thank, thank you, you. 
Thanks for tuning in to another famous interview with Joe Domino, where we cover the world of art, literature, business, spirituality, music, and more from around the globe. Our esteemed theme music was composed and produced by the great E.E. E. Pointer of Kansas City's River Cow Orchestra. If you want to hear more interviews, visit the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino channel on YouTube. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. Thank you.